we're freaking miracles. All of us are freaking miracles. Like think about all the things that had to go right for me to be sitting in this chair right now in 2023. Like everything from asteroids and the Big Bang to dinosaurs going extinct to like world wars to my grandparents meeting and then my parents meeting and like being in America. I mean, it's just when you think about your life and all of the steps that had to come together for you to be here right now, we're all miracles. Welcome to the Impact Roadmap, a podcast designed to give you the practical, concrete steps to grow your nonprofit or future forward business in a sustainable way. I'm your host, Joey Goon. Let's get into the episode. Hey, all. I am so excited to have Rio Wong here today. This episode is going to be mind-blowing for our nonprofit friends um, as we welcome Rhea to the Impact Roadmap podcast. And Rhea, needless to say, you are a dynamo. Uh, you've raised millions of dollars in private philanthropy. I know you're passionate about um, really building the next generation of fundraising leaders. You live in New York with your husband. And simply put, if I could sum it up in a nutshell, and uh, I did m- maybe, maybe not pull this from your website, but you train nonprofit leaders to fundraise more money from high net worth donors. And uh, I just have to say, like, who else better to do that than a former ED that helped take an organization from, I think it was like two or 300K in donations to over $3 million in annual donations, which is incredible. So first off, please tell us a little bit more about you. Yeah, Joey, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. I can tell we're going to have a lot of fun. Uh, so like you mentioned, I was an ED in New York City for over a decade, and I was a 26-year-old ED, which means I knew literally nothing. But of course, being 26, I was like, I know everything. I can figure this out. So the first day on the job, they handed me the keys and my email address. I was like, okay, good luck. And I did two Google searches. The first Google search is, what does an ED actually do? And the second Google search was, how do you fundraise? I mean, I was so clueless. And over the 12 years, I figured it out. But I was like, why did it take me 12 years to figure this out? And so this next stage of my career, I'm really passionate about training people to learn what I had to learn the hard way and, you know, make new and different mistakes. Don't make the same mistakes I made. I will teach you to avoid those mistakes. And, um, you know, the great irony is that in the nonprofit field, so many people are charged with this job of fundraising without any training, without any support. And yet, we're trying to solve the most intractable problems of our society. Like, why wouldn't we equip people to bring the resources in to help change the world? So that's, I'm on this tear to do that, particularly for folks of color, because I think we need to diversify the field. Um, and particularly, I think a lot of folks of color like don't even know that fundraising is a career and what that looks like. So that's it in a nutshell. That's what's got me on fire. Can we talk about what those mistakes are? Like, what do you think, what was the first mistake? Well, maybe not the first mistake, but what was the most meaningful mistake that you made that you're trying to kind of coach people through? Like, hey, here's what I learned through making this mistake. Here's, you know, don't do this. Oh my gosh. Well, it really has to do with the first chapter of my book, which is about mindset. So I mean, up to a million dollars in revenue, I was just white knuckling my way through it, right? And it was really couched in this idea of there's not enough money out there and I have to compete to get it, especially in a pressure cooker like New York City. It was just like, I got to grind harder. I got to hustle harder. Like, you know, other people are my competition. I got to like do more, be more, show up. Um, and 
it was really based in this idea, this this illusion that there was only so much out there. Like there weren't enough pieces of the pie. And if I didn't grind and hustle, I was not going to get my piece of the pie. And let me just tell you, Joey, that is a number one recipe for burnout. Like I, my adrenal glands are shot. I would like wake up in a cold sweat at four o'clock in the morning. I mean, it was terrible. And I really credit Jennifer McCray. I took her class at Harvard and it just totally shifted my whole perspective about money and abundance and the fact that there is more than enough out there. And my job is really as a, a vessel to attract the right partners and then to you know, redirect that money to the world um, and to the mission that we're trying to do. And I think when I approached it with a different kind of an energy, I wasn't white knuckling anymore. Like I think I think we have such a hustle and grind culture, particularly in New York, but it's just not healthy. And it it's why I think a lot of fundraisers burn out. And so um, I think the lesson of A, believing that there's enough and like just chilling out and really approaching the work is like, I'm just connecting with people and seeing how they want to be involved with the work versus like, I'm like desperately trying to like squeeze money out of people. Desperate energy is not cute energy. Desperation is a stinky perfume and no one likes it. That's so true. So, uh, so you're, you're really coming from, instead of the scarcity mindset, you're coming from the abundance mindset. Like there's more That's than right. enough out there. I just have to know my value, know my worth, and then be able to add value to other individuals. That's exactly right. And, you know, I, I know for you as an entrepreneur, that's probably something that you've also experienced, right? Yeah. And I, I struggled, you know, like I struggled early on in my career um, to figure out what that is, you know, what is my relationship mm -hmm. with money? And I, and I have friends who make fun of me because I'm an internal optimist. And I always say every, every day above ground is an incredible day. I didn't crown that phrase. I didn't create that. I've just repurposed it yeah. as sort of a mantra to my, in my life. And I try and bring that with me in like in every interaction. And so I leave people's lives better than I found them. I want to do that through my energy. And, and, and I, I shifted, I was reading your book the other day and I love how you, you call out the, I have to do this to, I get to do this, or I choose mm -hmm. to do this. And you mm -hmm. talk about having this unshakable belief in the bounty of the world and personal power to make results happen. And that really is coming from the place of abundance. So, so for me, I found that through the Miracle Morning. So a shout out to- Oh, are you a Miracle Morning person? Are you up at 4 a.m.? I tried doing it. I was uh, no, like, no. I, I can't. I cannot do this. <laughs> I can't do it. I, I'm not like Hal. Like Hal's up at 5.30, but I hired Hal as my coach for two years and I've learned more no from Hal than, than um, any single person that I've ever connected with in my life. And I have adopted the Miracle Morning as a way that I live my life. So I'm doing the silence, affirmations, visualization, exercise, reading, scribing. It gets me grounded. I feel connected. I feel grateful. I'm shifting my mindset from have to to how can I and I get to do this. And then from there, I'm really able to serve others because I'm first pouring into my own cup, putting my oxygen on my oxygen mask on first um, so that I can help the person next to me. So what is it for you? Where does your personal power come from uh, to make your personal power to make results happen? Where does that come from? Okay, wait, can I ask an answer that question first or? I don't want to comment on what you just said because I, uh, so I'm working with a coach as well. Shout out to my coach, Eugene Choi. But he talks about, we talk a lot about the brain science behind it and that your brain is only ever in one of two modes, either survival or executive. Survival mode is, you know, reactive, freaking out, being, um, you know, anxious, stressed out, frustrated, all the things, right? 
And executive mode is exactly what you're doing with your miracle morning, which is getting your brain into the generative space, the creative space, the decision-making space, the calm space, being in flow state. And 70% of the time, people are in survival state. And I actually think that's a, a low estimate. I think most people are in survival state all the time, particularly coming out of the pandemic. I think people just are like freaking out. There's a high level of anxiety everywhere. And I think when you operate from this base of survival, you're going to burn out eventually because the body was not designed to be under this constant stress and pressure. You know, like these these devices that we have that are pinging email 24-7. We're just, we're not meant to be under this onslaught of, of uh stimulus all of the time. So I think your practices around meditations, around calming down, around mantras is really helpful in today's environment. Speaking of time, I've been recently listening to a, a podcast with the guy who wrote 4,000 Weeks. Have you heard about this? No. So he wrote this book called 4,000 Weeks, and basically 4,000 Weeks is the average amount of a human lifespan. And like mm -hmm. when put that way, you're like, oh my God, 4,000 weeks is not that long. And it really starts to clarify, like what kind of bullshit am I doing with 4,000? Like if I only have 4,000 weeks, how am I not squeezing every bit of life on this planet? Like 4,000 weeks is not a long time really to think about it. And so I think it really clarifies like how am I like spending time with people I want to spend it with? How am I living my life the way I want to live it? How am I, you know, working with the people I want to work with? And how am I, to your point, spreading joy in this world and spreading connection in this world? Like, and by the way, I don't want to spend my 4,000 a week like looking on Instagram. Yeah. Yeah, that there's a, um, there's a, that, that quote that comparison is the thief of joy. And when you look at Instagram or you look at social media or these things that are constantly vying for our attention, you're going to be very disappointed. And so we talked about this before we hit record that so many people are trying to find happiness outside of them. It's an external thing. When I get my business to this level, then I'll be happy. When this organization becomes a sponsor, then I'll be happy. When this thing happens in my life, my spouse does this, my partner does that, these friends do this then I'll be happy. And the, the, the reality is none of that is true. There, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. None of that is true. It's all an internal journey. You just have to be happy with yourself. Yeah. So how do um, we get, sorry, go ahead. Oh, well, do you listen to Dr. Andrew Huberman at all? No, but I'm going to look that up. Oh my God, Joey, you would love Huberman. Huberman is, um, he's out of Stanford and he's like a He's a neurologist, neuroscientist. Anyway, I forget exactly what he does, but it's about um, your brain and and your human life. And he talks about exactly that point about this idea of like some future point is when I will be happy. Or the reason why we don't put in the the hard work is because we like we want the dopamine hit of like the thing done, Instinct. but we actually have to find the dopamine hit in the doing. Right. And so I don't know. I think as I get oh, I older and I get more perspective in, of the world, I'm like, oh, it is actually. I mean, you know, I heard it when I was young. It's like, it's about the journey, not about the destination. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But also, I'm just going to race to the destination. And, you know, to get back to fundraising, I had this idea of like, oh, once my organization hits a million dollars, like life will be great. Everything will be perfect. Well, the truth is, once I hit that million dollar mark, it wasn't perfect. It was just, 
new and different problems than I had under the million dollars. And so, you know, to your point is, and it sounds so cliche, but like it, it's true, is you have to find the joy in the little things, right? So, you know, for me, it's like taking my dog on a walk or like doing my daily meditation or enjoying, you know, my daily cup of coffee. It is these little things that have to add up to a life. It's so beautiful. I love that. See, we we connected today thinking we were just going to talk about fundraising and how to grow a successful nonprofit and uh, and do the work in the world that matters, which is you know building better communities. And yet here we are talking about what it means to be alive, which I think yeah. is really the most important thing, because if you can connect with that, you can do anything. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting you um, led with the spiritual practice, because I think in life and certainly in fundraising, managing your own mind and m managing your own energy is the biggest thing that you can do. Because let me, let me put it to you this way. And I use dating analogies for a lot of the work that I do. So a lot of people think that fundraising is about the solicitation they don't realize that fundraising is actually about relationship building. So when people approach fundraising with the idea of it's about solicitation, that's like going on a first date and asking someone to marry you on the first date. Like that's not how things work. Instead, the way that I want people to think about fundraising is like you're in the world, you're meeting lots of people, and some of these people are going to be your kind of people and you can be partners and build something, and some of them are not going to be, right? And if we have a belief in abundance – not every single person is going to be your person. But if we are connected, if we are on the same level, right, we're going to go through the process of getting to know each other. Like, what do you want in the world? What are your values? Do you see the world the same way? And if and if so, what can we build together? And if it all aligns, then I ask for the gift, which is really just an invitation to join me in our noble mission. And then afterwards, we have to continue to build the relationship. It's like, you know, you don't marry someone and then ignore them <laughs> until, you know, once a year on your anniversary, like, hey, we got married, woo, right? So I always say that asking for a gift is not closing a deal, it's opening a relationship. I love that. And I love that you used inviting instead of asking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're, I mean, no, no one's mad about an invitation. Yeah, you're inviting people into their joy. Instead of asking, yeah, for yeah. Well, and the thing is, I, I just, I really have this belief that at the, like, whether we are conscious of it or not, we all know that our time on this planet is finite, right? And I think the older you get, the more, more clear it becomes to you that, like, hey, this is just a temporary gig. And so, as humans, I think we really want to believe, and you said it best, like that we've left the world in a little bit better shape than we found it, right? That we want our lives to have meant something, that we want a legacy. And so philanthropy offers people the opportunity to leave the world in a little bit of a better place. Like I, I want to believe that someone's life has been better because of my time on this planet. Love that. So we talked about mindset and spiritual spirituality and energy. Um, let's get into the nitty gritty and sort of some of the strategies um, around yeah, for sure. 101 because you have so much knowledge to share and there's no way we can unpack it all within the next 30 minutes. But um, I think we can leave our audience better than we found them. Yeah. So if you're an organization right now, you're an executive director or director of advancement development, um, and you're at that 200,000 million dollar level, what are the biggest shifts that you think people should be considering like 
what would you invite our our listeners um, to do? Like those shifts that they should be making now to start scaling yeah. to a million and beyond, just like you did. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if no one, if people don't listen to anything but this, this is the one thing I would say: small gifts are transactional, big gifts are relational. What do I mean by that? So so often especially when you're in that hustle mentality, you think of people as kind of uh, like walking checkbooks or they're, they're, not everyone, but like, you know, there's a tendency to think about like, well, what can I say? Like, what what's my marketing going to do to like convince people to donate? And the thing that I really found is that in order to scale, you have to do things that don't scale. And what I mean by that is you actually have to think about your donors as human beings, right? I think there's so much prejudice against, I I know how this is going to sound, but I, I do think like the last acceptable prejudice is against people who have money, like people of wealth, right? Like we have all of these things in our society, like, oh, well, rich people are bad. Like the villains in movies are always like very wealthy, and the truth is, uh, wealth does not change people. It's just a magnifier or amplifier of what is already there, right? So if you were a miserly, terrible person with no money, you're going to be even more so with money. If you were a generous, kind person with money, without money, you will be more so with money. And when we put our cells in the shoes of our donors. So this actually does go back to the whole question of spirituality and and empathy is what value am I offering my donor in exchange for their monetary resources? Like to me, it's a value for value, right? What is it that they want? Do they want, are they looking for significance? Are they looking for a legacy? Are they looking for community? Are they looking to be part of something bigger than themselves? Like all of these things could be true. And the the thing that I find is that we are so reluctant to just enter into really meaningful, purposeful conversations with people, right? Like, I don't know if it's because we're scared to screw up. We're scared to offend. We have a lot of anxiety about our own relationship to money. And so we hold people at an arm's length. But the truth is people, they can feel authenticity. They can feel when you're bringing them in close. They can feel when you want the best for them. Um, and I would just say, so I know that's not, you know, I, I don't know if you're looking for an answer around like frameworks and like the thing that you do, but I just think bringing people yeah, in and allowing them to be part of your community is, is what I think the the message is. Love yeah, that. be human. Be human. Create community. Create community. Create community. And yeah. And, and, um, and think about, think about the ways that you're acting and communicating that inspire trust, right? Because ultimately fundraising or doing business is just a trust exercise. Like if you don't trust me, you're not going to do business with me. You're not going to donate to my cause. And I talk about this a lot. There are three different kinds of trust. The first kind of trust is competency trust. Like, are you good at the thing that you say that you're doing? The second is community trust, which is, does somebody that I trust trust you? And then the third is caring trust, which is, do you care about me as a person? And I think as nonprofits, the more we can focus our energies on demonstrating those three kinds of trust, like I think we lean very heavily on the competence trust of like, yeah, oh, like we're so good. Look at all the impact we have. Da, da, da. That's fine. 
But caring trust is where I think we really need to focus our efforts, which is you know, generally why our retention rates tend to be kind of bad, because we don't spend the time to let people know that we care about them as people, not just as a checkbook. What is what is the best example of loving on you that you've ever received as a donor to an organization? Just assuming that you've you've also been a donor on the other side of the table, um, or or perhaps in your consulting practice and working with other nonprofits, what is the what is the best like outreach or uh, example of loving on a donor that you've ever experienced? Oh. It is actually interesting. So I am a donor to lots of organizations, and I have to say that like, the donor experience has not been amazing. Um, I'm going to call out Jess Campbell, who, by the way, should be on this podcast if you've not had her. I participated in one of her conferences, and she sent me this beautiful, handwritten, gorgeous card as a thank you. And it didn't cost her much to do it, but just the fact that this beautiful handwritten card was delivered to me meant so much. And I think um, I've talked to Erica Carley at Chive Charities. They have a 98% month over month retention rate for their monthly donor program, which is insane. And they do it by handwritten cards. Like they do little things to help people feel like they care about them. And it doesn't cost you a lot, but the or just the generosity of spirit to let people know that you appreciate them, you see them, and that they're valued members of the community go such a long way. Rhea, can I share a story with you that, that yes. inspired a thought? So I am a um, I, I'm a donor uh, as well, and I, this is like this is the the best, most connective experience that I've ever been a part of, and it has to do with writing letters. So I was at an event and it's funny, like Hal, Hal Elrod was there. He was one of the speakers and um, it was for a wish organization. So it was like, come to this thing and it's kind of a donor development retreat, but with some motivational speakers kind of sprinkled in to get us charged up. It's like entrepreneurs that want to leave the world better than we found it. You're a visionary. The world needs you to be successful. I pulled that from your website. And uh, here we are. We're all successful individuals. Let's be more successful and let's get fired up. And then let's help this nonprofit organization build their future. We're going to co-create their future together. And so here's the way that they did that. They showed a story that's a wish organization of this little girl who was battling a terminal illness. And she had spent so much of her time in the four walls of a hospital getting treatments. And all she wanted to do was go to a Taylor Swift concert. And after this story, I mean, we were all, we were all crying. Obviously there's 200 something of, you know, 200 or so of us in this room. We're, we're just bawling our eyes out. Like this little girl, she should not know that as, as her reality. Nobody should. Um, but, but, you know, she's six, seven years old and we're, oh my God, we're just, our hearts are, um, are just, you, we just feel for her so deeply and empathize with her situation. So they said, here's what we're going to do. Every single one of us in this room right now is going to write her a letter. And so 200 strangers wrote this little girl a letter. And then of, um, after we wrote the letters, they collected them. And we fundraised for her wish to come true so she could go see Taylor Swift. And then three months later, that nonprofit organization sent us videos of her wish coming through, coming true her actualizing her wish and meeting Taylor Swift. It was all on video and her reading the letters that we wrote her. And that was the most, this has been seven years now since this experience happened. And that was the most meaningful follow-up interaction that I've ever had. 
And I think about how do we do things like that? If we're going to use events as a platform to build community, which is what our business utopia does is use events and video stories to connect people at scale. We've got to do it meaningfully. What are your thoughts on, on that approach? Um, and then I want to unpack kind of like where you think events and stories play, um, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, so many thoughts. Well, you told me that story and I I I have chills, right? Like it it's so meaningful because I I think look, the bottom line is that the technology that we have now means that there are no excuses. Like I could pick up my phone and do a good video. I can pick up my phone and do, you know, reasonably good pictures, right? So um I think that technology has lowered the the cost of doing business. And I think that we need to teach people how to be storytellers because essentially when you were donating to that thing, you had had a vision of yourself as being the kind of person that helps a little kid, right? Like the kind of person that wants to make this wish come true. You need to loop that story. Like there has to be an ending to the story. It's like watching a movie. Like if you stopped watching a movie in the middle that you were into, you'd be like, well, what happened? Right. And so often as nonprofits, we forget to, to end the loop of like, and this is what happened, right? We need that resolution. Otherwise we're dissatisfied. And so that's where I think storytelling plays a key role. But I also think just being really thoughtful about the stewardship is important. And what what role do you feel that events and stories play in fundraising overall? Okay, I'm going to unpack that. So I have I have two different answers. So I think um, number one, storytelling is critical to fundraising, and let me tell you why. I'm going to go into the brain science here. When we talk about facts and figures and whatever, that one part of our brain lights up. That's like the business part of the brain, right? It's the logical, rational part of the brain. When we think about philanthropy and giving, it's it's not the same part of the rational part of the brain. It's the emotional part of the brain. It's the same part of the brain where we store uh, like emotions and family. So the way that we are able to trigger the emotion of the ask is really through storytelling, right? This you know this little girl who's only been in these four walls her whole life. And the only thing she ever wanted to see was Taylor Swift in concert, right? Like that pulls at your heartstrings. And so I think the best fundraisers are the ones who know how to tell stories and use narrative in a way to engage people's hearts. And the the numbers only back up what we've already made as an emotional decision, right? We use it to justify the emotional part of like, yes, I want to help. Like, I'm sure for you, when you saw this little girl, your first thought wasn't like, "Mm -hmm." like, let me think about all of the, you know, my bank account and da, da, da. You were thinking like, with my heart, I want to help this little girl, right? Yeah. So we need to be unabashed about leading with our hearts and leading with stories and leading with, you know, how we can help people make a difference. To the point of events, so are you are you talking about sort of fundraising events or just community events? Like, what's the specifically about events? Uh, both. Let's talk about both, and we can start okay. wherever wherever you you want to start. Yeah. Okay. So I have some thoughts about this. So um, 
I think that a lot of nonprofits think of events as the main vehicle for fundraising. So often, you know, we've you've seen like the bikeathons or the runathons or the whateverathons, uh, the walkathons. Um, it can be an effective vehicle for fundraising. Generally speaking, though, I am not a huge fan of events as your first go-to because. A, I think it can be very time and, and resource intensive. And B, the ROI isn't always there. Um, and so I think metrics for success have to be more than just monetary. It has to be like, okay, is this a brand building opportunity? Is this a list building opportunity? Um, that being said, though, I do think events can be really powerful particularly because I think we're all just so sick of this digital world. Like I don't want to be on Zoom anymore, right? And I think there's a lot of power in being in proximity and like, you know, we're exchanging energy, the you know, oxytocin is high. Uh, so I think if used well, events can be very effective. I am generally a, a big fan of smaller, more intimate events because I'm really into human connection. And I, the older I get, the less patience I have for like meaningless chit chat. Like, I don't want to talk about the weather. I don't want to like, I don't, you know, whatever, like, oh, how's it going? Blah, blah, blah. It's, it's so surface level. Like if I have a conversation, I want to get to the good stuff. I want to talk about like who you are, your purpose, your passion, what makes you tick, how might we collaborate together? And like, that's very hard to do at a big event. So I don't know if, does it, if that answers your question. It does. <clears throat> yeah. It, it, it kind of echoes the exact same way that we feel um, at Utopia as event producers and, and storytellers, because we started to realize, and especially in the, in the nonprofit space, you know, like nonprofits are 60% of our business because we like working with purpose-driven individuals. And, and mm -hmm. so we started to get super curious around our clients' relationships with events, with their stories and how they're leveraging these platforms to draw in and inspire audience audiences, like, you know, donors, prospective donors, sponsors, prospective sponsors, board members, stakeholders. So we started workshopping, to your point, a smaller event with all of us in our small community of like internal people at Utopia and stakeholders of like, how do we create community at scale? How can we inject mission at events? And how can we elevate event experiences and ignite hearts and scale this widespread feeling of like connection and purpose? Ultimately, mm -hmm. like, how do we tell stories that get to the why and how do we do it in a way that creates massive value for our clients? Mm -hmm. Because we know that event experiences can be expensive and they're transient and they're impermanent. They, mm -hmm. they happen and you invest so much time, energy, and effort. You produce this thing and then boom, the event is over. And, and a lot of people, unfortunately, are evaluating whether or not the event was successful on whether or not you hit your fundraising goal the night of the event. So we started to realize, like you have, it's like, this is not where it stops. It has to go much deeper than that. And mm -hmm. we realize we have to be like therapists and coaches and kind of motivate our nonprofits that the the end of the event is the beginning of the relationship. That's right. That's, That's right. something that you yeah. really talk about. Yeah. Uh, and I think I think the unfortunate thing is because of the scarcity mindset in our sector is that we don't bake in a long-term vision. So we know that statistically it takes about 21 months to close a major gift, right? But we're so beholden to the end of the fiscal year that we rush things and we don't let relationships blossom organically and naturally. And that's like, honestly, that's why a lot of people don't want to talk to fundraisers because they feel like they're going to be pressured and ambushed before they're really ready to give. And I think, and look, and I, being an ED, I understand the pressures of meeting 
your goals by the end of the year. And I think, you know, as leaders, we have to think a little bit more expansively about how do we make room for letting the relationship breathe a little bit. Um, by the way, have you read this book called You're Invited by John Levy? Uh, no, I have not. Oh my gosh, Joey, you got to read this book. It's so right. good. Um, but it's John Levy wrote this book about the art and science of cultivating influence. Oh, you can't even see it, but it, it's it's really good. Um, and one of the things he talks about is designing events for connection. Um, and he talks about a couple of charity events that he, he did, which like so good, so good. Anyway, if That's you read amazing. it, we should talk again. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> I yeah, I would I would love to reconnect. I would love to reconnect on that. Yeah. Um, well, and, and I think you and I have a lot of the same values. So I'd, I'd be very curious about what you think about the book and how it might influence you, the way you do business. For sure. And and I'm I'm sure that there's somewhere in his book where he talks about the value of creating community. And it's not just about like you being program heavy and it's like this one way sage on the stage, passive, passive recipients in the audience that are just receiving information from the stage. It's about having your donors and stakeholders and partners and prospective donors turn to each other. Like they should leave your event with a new best friend. And if you can create yeah. that type of community and that type of feeling, then the ROI exists and trend beyond the event transcends the four walls of the venue. So that's what we're trying to enable at, yeah. you know, at event for experiences. Sure. Yeah, for sure. So he talked, it's all about community. And so what he talks about is, I don't, I didn't intend to be a plug for the book, but um, what he talks about is how you curate events that are connecting for people. And and he started by having these like, I think monthly dinners and he would invite very influential people and no one was allowed to tell each other what they did. Right. And, and part of the dinner is that they cooked dinner together. And then at the end of the dinner, people were allowed to say like what they didn't, like you go to the dinner and you're like, Oh, I didn't realize I was cooking dinner next to an astrophysicist and Dr. Ruth. Right. So it was really about who are we first as people doing a thing together before the titles, before the status, before, you know, all of the things. And anyway, read the book. Would love to know your thoughts on it. Yeah. Love it. I absolutely will. I just, I just pulled it up on Google. An astrophysicist. Um, but speaking of astrophysicist, I, I'm <laughs> obsessed with Neil deGrasse Tyson. I don't know if, if, uh, uh yeah, big fan. <laughs> okay. Wait, I, I had to my, um, a dear friend of mine, ran an organization Harlem and she had him as her gala speaker. And I was like, no way. Can I come to your gala? She's like, sorry, you can't afford the ticket. I'm like, but okay. Yeah. No. Amazing. <laughs> Have you been uh, following all this web telescope stuff? Uh, no. Is there any relation to, Oh no, 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 no. Tell me, tell me more about it. I was going to go, I was, I was thinking something else for a moment and then I, I processed the thought and I'm like, nope. Yeah. So tell it, tell, tell me more, but tell us more about it. Oh, so somewhat connected to astrophysics. So the, the web telescope is the one that they sent out. Um, it's like the upgrade to the Hubble telescope and they're getting like pictures from like what, however billion light years away. And literally they're, they have pictures of stars being born and they have this thing called the pillars of creation, just like crazy pictures. You should see it. it. Anyone listening, go look at pictures of the Webb telescope. Um, but we're getting 
all kinds of crazy information about the galaxy and the universe and the fact that we're, we are all made of stardust. It's like such an incredible idea. And I was talking to my coach about it. I was like, holy shit, like we are all just stardust. We're like made of dinosaurs and stardust and we're freaking miracles. All of us are freaking miracles. Like think about all the things that had to go right for me to be sitting in this chair right now in 2023 like everything from asteroids and the big bang to dinosaurs ex going extinct to like world wars to my grandparents meeting and then my parents meeting and like being in america i mean it's just when you think about your life and all of the steps that had to come together for you to be here right now it's we're all miracles blowing. it's mind-blowing like the fact that human beings even exist <laughs> right like and we're all like little dots. <laughs> we're all little specks on this planet that is floating in space it, it, i know it's, it's crazy it's, yeah it's absolutely like, mind-boggling that and then I mean, we, and get, we get challenged and, and concerned about things that are so trivial things that are so, so inconsequential trivial. i know i know it's it's like like so four thousand weeks and like we're just these little specks on the planet for a very finite amount of time. And the fact that like, I don't know, when I go down this rabbit hole, I'm just like, holy moly, there are like whales in the ocean. Like that's crazy, right? Like there's, there are birds that fly in the sky. That is insane. When you start to look at life that way, I did a, um, a meditation the other day and she was like, I encourage you after this meditation, it, it, when next time you're in the car and you're driving, try and notice all of the shades of green and how beautiful they are. And when you can start to see the world that way in the way that you've just described, that everything around, you can either see that nothing around us is a miracle or everything around us is a miracle. Nice, nice Einstein quote. I like it. Yeah. Yep. I, pulled, I did not come up with that one either. Or but, wait, um, is that he Helen Keller? I don't know. I'm a big inspirational quote person. <laughs> I love it. But wait, wait, wait. I, I to just, go back though. Yeah. Sorry. Well, so I, I like to the event question, I am reminded of that quote from Maya Angelou, like people will forget what you said and what you did, but they're never going to forget the way you made them feel. And I, I think that that to loop back around, like as human beings on the planet, like we have a responsibility and obligation to make people feel better in our presence. Yeah, we absolutely do. I think as far as fundraising events go, we should be thinking about connection and inspiring awe and novelty and curation, right? Because it's very hard to impress us anymore. <laughs> like we are in this 24-7 Instagram world. I think we've become very jaded about things. And frankly, especially post-pandemic, I think it's hard to get people to go to stuff because they're like, eh, I'd really rather be in my pajamas. So I want to give people a reason to put their pants on. <laughs> You, you can use everything. Give people a reason to put that. their pants on, right? In this like, digital them... world, I may not have pants on right now doing this podcast. You, Who knows? You have no idea. I, I'm not wearing pants right now, right? Give people a reason to put their pants on, but make it worth their while. And I think, again, it goes back to what I was saying. If we can put ourselves in the shoes of the donor and think about what is a value to them, not what is a value to me as an organization, right? Because I think when we do that, then we produce events that are kind of like the boring galas and we like get people in and like feed them rubber chicken dinners and ask them for money. That doesn't serve them. What would create 
a valuable experience for our donors such that they will walk away excited about it, wanting to tell their friends, wanting to come back next year. You know, maybe they they made a new best friend, right? And so, and it doesn't take a lot of energy and time and money to do simple things to make people feel special. Wait, I have a story. Can I share a story? Absolutely. So here in New York City, uh, there's a there's a very fancy restaurant called Eleven Madison Park, and it used to be part of the Danny Meyer Group. But um, you know, very very fancy. Anyway, the point is, my husband took me there on my birthday, and it was a great experience. I don't remember what we ate, but what I do remember is when they gave me the menu, they had printed out a menu that said "Happy Birthday, Ria" on the top. Did not cost them any money to do. Like, was not something that was going to break the bank. But I remember that. Like, I don't remember what I ate. I don't remember anything about it other than the fact that they took the time to do this one very small thing that made me feel like they really cared about me. Like, oh my gosh, you like not only knew that it was my birthday, but you went so far as to print up a menu, which literally took no money and no time, but it has stuck with me all these years and has made me a lifelong customer. That's an awesome story. So to all of our friends who go to New York and want to go out for a really nice, fancy dinner, uh, now you've got a place to go. Well, that creates an incredibly <laughs> memorable. I'm sure it's impossible to get into as well. <laughs> well, no, it's a funny thing. There's a whole other thing. So Daniel Hum took it over and he, during the pandemic, decided to make the entire restaurant uh, plant-based and vegan. So I think it's less difficult to get in now than it used to be. Um, but the experience is fantastic. Is there a is there a nonprofit fundraising myth that you'd like to dispel right here and now? Um, gosh, there are so many. You know what? I'm going to dispel the myth of donor fatigue. I think a lot of people are like, well, our donors aren't giving and we keep hitting the same list and there's donor fatigue. I would say that... It's less about donor fatigue and more about the fact that you as a nonprofit have not sufficiently created a value exchange and brought them into the community. Because ultimately, like I said, generosity lives in the same place where family lives and where emotions live. And like, you're never going to be like, well, you know, my daughter asked for one too many peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And so I'm just not going to do it. <laughs> right. So um, I think the myth is that people get tired of giving. No, they just get tired of giving to you because you have not made it clear to them what the impact of their gift is or to love them up enough to make them feel like they're truly part of your community. I love it. Love it. Anything else that uh, that's on your head or your heart that uh, that you want to share before we wrap up? Oh my gosh, there's so much. Joey, this has been so fun. Thank you for having me. Um, You know, I think... I think... It's interesting. The older I get, the more simple I think it becomes, which is just be a good person. Just treat people well. Just lead with kindness and respect and good things will happen. Um, and I think when I was younger with that hustle and grind mentality, it was because I was insecure and I really didn't know myself enough. I didn't really understand the way the world was. And so I was constantly just like, in that competitive space and it's exhausting. But if you just lead with generosity, curiosity, and kindness, I think good things come to you. Thank you for that. Uh, final questions, rapid fire. 
Favorite book, movie, or podcast show? Uh, my favorite book of all time is The God of Small Things by Aaron Dottie Roy, which has nothing to do with fundraising. What matters to you most in life? Mm, my dog. <laughs> uh, and yeah, a life well lived. A favorite place you've traveled to? Hard question. Uh, so many places. I'm going to say one that sticks in my mind is uh, a scuba diving trip I took in Costa Rica. Talking like talking about the majesty of the world. I saw uh, Pacific manta rays zooming past me, and I just sat there for 20 minutes watching them. It was incredible. What is one thing that you want to brag about right now, without judgment? This can be either, you know, about yourself, personal, professional accomplishments, your team, your partner, your community, your network, just anything that you're really proud of right now that you don't get to brag about often. Um, oh my gosh, that's such a good question. Uh, so I tried stand-up comedy. Yes. I'm going to get back into it. Tried stand-up comedy. I have bombed all over New York City and downtown Brooklyn, and I didn't die. I did a five-minute set bombed out and I didn't die. So yay. I'm glad you didn't die. We wouldn't have been able to have this conversation today and, um, and you wouldn't be able to continue to serve all the incredible people that you are serving and have yet to serve. I'm glad yeah, that you're still here on this planet. I am too, you know, but you no, know, we're both specs. We're just stardust. Yeah. 4,000, 4,000 weeks. We're going to make the most of our 4,000 weeks, but, um, you know, one thing that I think about a lot is I, I had a friend named Dodo who was 105 years old when she died. And she was just like so full of life. And she would say to me, Rhea, girls like us can't be ignored. Um, but she had when you called her on her phone, her voicemail, it's like, hi, this is Dodo. Everything is going to be OK. And I was like, OK. Like you've lived for 105 years. I'm going to believe you. <laughs> you've seen a lot of stuff. It's all going to be fine. Everything's going to be okay. Everything is going to be okay. <laughs> How can people get in touch with you? Because I, I want to spend more I, time with you. I'm sure our audience wants to spend a lot more time with you. How? how uh, oh, that's so kind. Uh, I'm on all of the things. So I have a website. I have a weekly free newsletter. I host weekly webinars that are free for nonprofit folks. And I'm on LinkedIn. So riawong.com. You can find all. I am not hard to find on the internet. <laughs> no, you're not. I can attest to that. You are everywhere <laughs> and, and deservedly so because you're adding so much value. I just, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart um, for you know, for joining, for joining me, for, for responding to my message when I reached out and said, you're a change agent and I'd love to talk to you more and learn more about you and just build a relationship. And you said yes to that. And, um, I just, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for you. Yeah, no, I am so grateful for you. I really appreciate the invitation and I'd love to see how we can collaborate. I'm loving what you're doing because listen, we do not need another river chicken dinner in this world. Right. So to the extent Preach. that you're creating different experiences for donors. They're coming away with feeling connected and inspired. Like we should do more of that. So let's see if we can collab. That sounds awesome. Um, you also, you mentioned too, that you wanted to give away a free copy of one of your chapters in your book. And so we'll put, yeah. that, we'll put that in the show notes. Um, and, uh, and we'll make sure that people can get access to that chapter of your book, because once they read the first chapter or whichever chapter you're offering for that matter, they're going to want the whole thing. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's been a lot of fun uh, with this book and connecting with folks. But you know, at the end of the day, I just I I wrote it, and I'm here for that 26 year old me that was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just gonna figure it out. So I don't want anyone else to have to figure it out or feel like they're alone because I I definitely felt isolated and like I don't know who I can turn to. Um, so. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Love it. Well, Ria Wong, you are a force for good and an incredible change agent, and uh, you are making an impact. Hence, you know, being on the impact roadmap, (laughs) you are an an impactful soul, and I'm so excited to see where your journey takes you. I'm excited to be a part of it, and now our audience is a part of it. Thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Joey. This is such a fun conversation. I really appreciate it. Hey, if this episode was valuable to you, then uh, share it with someone that you love, someone that you know that could benefit from it. Also, be sure to subscribe and depending on how you're listening, go ahead and leave a comment or review. This will help ensure that we are connecting with other nonprofit leaders so that we can get this critical information out to them. And if your company is in the early or even late stages of putting on an event, go to our website, utopiaexperience.com and click the book us tab and schedule a free discovery call to see if our services would be a right fit for your event. And even if they're not, that's okay. I promise you our expertise can steer you in the right direction so you'll get value either way. Thanks for listening to the Impact Roadmap and we'll see you next time.